Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the online bookmaker that offers you the best odds, highest limits and a unique winner's welcome policy. Joining me today for his second appearance on the podcast is owner of TennisRatings.co.uk, Dan Weston. Hi Ben, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. Looking forward to the French Open starting in just over a week's time now. Good stuff. Yeah, I think we've, we planned this one perfectly. Yeah, definitely. Cool. I know you, as I said before, you're on sort of towards the start of the year, so people have heard a little bit about you if they listened to that episode, and obviously you've you've contributed articles to Pinnacle for a while now, but for anyone that isn't aware of you, could you just kind of give us a, a brief history of, of your kind of career today and, and where you are now? Sure. Well, um, I turned 40 last month, which was uh, it's quite a shock, but um, realistically, I've been sort of involved in this sort of numbers and uh betting market for the majority of my adult life so you're looking at almost 20 years now pretty much graduated from from university um with accounting finance degree at the age of like 2021 uh in my last year at university i learned how to play slots sort of professionally if you like um and i advantage played um slots primarily fruit machines in pubs but also in, at times like um the fixed odd terminals in bookmakers as well um for you know advantage played them for for a number of years well, well over 10 years really and still you know stay in touch with a lot of people from that side of scene so if I, if if someone works something out they might they might be able to pass pass on something just and it's just all mathematical calculations really at the end of the day so you're working out an expected cost of of something with uh, with with a expected return in mind that you've already sort of pre-identified before you start playing the machine and at the end of the day it's just the same as as, as advanced betting and, and and a number of other areas of life as well you're looking at expected value calculations and and and, and expected hourly rates and that's all that you really need to focus on in that type of area um from moving on with that um I started looking at sports data in in quite strong detail. Um, probably about must be about seven eight years ago now. Started looking at tennis data in 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 a, in a serious way, um, and spent a lot of time looking at trying to work out how to to use that to to an advantage at that point. Um, developed my own models and and statistics and databases on on various types of things, both pre match and in play in tennis and set up my own website eventually tennisratings.co.uk which um i've written a ton of articles and 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 produced a, a ton of data for that over over the over the years obviously i've written for you guys on a regular basis for about four years now and, and i do some other other work as well for other other online companies too um moving on from that about two three years ago i i, I started um, some cricket analytics businesses as well that's not gambling focused at all that's that's just primarily focusing on helping players and teams improve their performances um in sorry, sorry just lose my train of thought um try and improve their performances on the field on financially and, and using statistics to try and try and help them in in to achieve those goals basically yeah i mean i must admit i love this idea of you kind of at the pub, fruit machines and pound coins spilling out. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know, you said there, there's there's a lot of difference between matching icons up on a fruit machine and, as you said, like betting on tennis, but the, the premise is kind of the same with expected cost, expected return and ultimately expected value. Has your, has your mindset kind of changed throughout your career as you've developed into tennis or is, is it still the same as it was back then? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. On the subject of coins spilling out of pockets, I would say that it's funny enough because I actually had to end up having to profile uh, makes of jeans based on how good their how robust their pockets were. And and I actually found that next jeans were quite good, and and you could get over four hundred quid in them in pound coins without them spilling over. <laughs> so you even look for EV in jeans as well. Um, yeah, the the machines is an interesting background because it it taught me to be quite risk averse. Um, the variance in slots at that point in pubs is very very low. You didn't need a, a big starting balance to be able to make a comfortable living, for example. So, and, and you would very, very, very rarely have a losing day and never have a losing week. The advantage was just too high on them. And, and you know, to make be able to make decent money when you you know just graduated from university or in your final year of your degree or whatever, it was 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 massive and it was consistent money, like I said. So yeah, it ta- it it teaches you well the the sort of the variance aspects when you go into sort of gambling. And, and I also spent quite a couple of years playing online poker full time as well. And I would say that the variance of that is even worse than 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 gambling and sports, for example, as well. So coming from machines, it's, it's, it's hard to take the variance in other forms of gambling, but also teaches you about, yeah, the variance in general. And, and also poker in particular was, was very good for bankroll management, doing that prior, prior to getting involved with sports, for example. So just to give you a bit, a bit of a guideline, with poker, I was playing six max uh, cash games online and... The, the recommended kind of formula is that you would use 40 to 50 times the buy-in for a table, max buy-in for a table, as as your bankroll. So so you divide your bankroll by sort of 40 or 50 times, and that would be the max buy-in that you'd be able to afford on a table. So obviously you're gambling sort of no more than two, 2.5% of your bankroll on on an individual table at any one time. So obviously it's going to be you're going to take an insane run of bad luck, assuming that you've got an edge for for that bankroll to be eroded. And I think that that's a lot of you can take a lot into into gambling and sports from that as well. So for example, I get quite a lot of emails by people saying, "Oh, um, what what what, what bankroll management should I use?" and Oh well, I busted my bankroll because I had like a run, losing run of like three or four or five bets, and I just so that's that's insane. You can't do that. Everyone, even no matter no matter how much of an edge you've got, everyone was going to have like a run of like three, four, five plus games where you're going to lose in a row. Everyone has bad variants. Everyone everyone has a tough tough time of it in the short term sometimes. So you obviously you've got to have that bankroll to be able to ride those fluctuations. And I think sort of having a background in other other disciplines in gambling was was very useful for that. All that information there, Dan, and all I could keep thinking about was buying my jeans from Next, or if you want to stuff your pockets, you've got to get your jeans from Next. I think that's a great a great line. Other jeans are available. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so as, as we've, we've gone through that, I mean, it's a really interesting career, it sounds like, and you're now, you're now obviously at tennis. Is that, um, and cricket, latterly, are those... Is that due to interest in the sports or is that due to available data or how easy they are to model and predict? Yeah, good question. Um, I think tennis primarily is more down to the availability of data at that point in time. I found I found there to be a lot better resources online at that point in time, which was applicable for what I wanted to do. Um, moving into cricket, like I said, it's it's not gambling orientated in cricket. I'm, I'm just primarily setting up a business to, to help teams, players and, and, and things like that. But cricket's more of a I would say more of an interest in terms of a, a passion of sport rather than tennis um I, I I don't 
I'm not really a fan of tennis. I just use that as a sort of a vehicle for what I wanted to achieve. And a lot of sometimes people do say to me, oh, you're not a fan, you don't like individual players or whatever. And I say, well, actually, I think that's probably a positive because you don't let that influence your your perception of an individual player as to whether they might be like, you know, value pre-match, for example. And, and sometimes I've even been said, well, you're betting against Federer. You're recommending a bet against Federer. Well, yeah, if that's the value, that's the price, then so be it. But they're like, well, I can't, I can't bet against Roger. Well, everyone has to bet against someone at some point in time. There's not a player who's exclusively value or non-value, you know? It's just just being sort of ambivalent to the the players and the sport in general, I think, is quite an advantage. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point. I think it's something that's probably more so associated with sports like soccer or, or in the NFL where you've got obviously team-based allegiances. But yeah, I mean, obviously people prefer individual tennis players and I'm sure it's a sport in other, uh, the case in other individual sports. And it's, I mean, it's something I didn't thought of, but yes, yeah, that's strange. Yeah, no, def- definitely. I think that's, tennis, I would say, probably has, for, for want of a better phrase, sort of more more devoted, ardent fans of particular players, and 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 they won't hear anything bad about them whatsoever. And and I'm just think it's quite unique for a sport, actually. Right. So I mean, the the purpose of this this podcast is to kind of, I mean, obviously we've got the French Open coming up, so we want to talk a lot about that, and then um, the surface and clay and and what that means to betting on tennis. But before we get to that, I just want to kind of scale back a little bit and kind of get down to the the basics of tennis betting in general because I mean obviously we're there's a spectrum here and you're you're probably right at one end but there's going to be people that are listening to this that are really new to the sport and betting on it and they're they're at the other end of that spectrum so if someone's kind of very new what what are the first bits of advice or the first things you tell them when they start betting on tennis okay well the first thing I'd say is kind of in line with that sort of the Federer comment that we just spoke about and that is just don't be influenced by a player's name or reputation or, or their rank or what they've done previously in their career and things like that I look more at sort of more medium term I would say data so primarily sort of 12 month data I find quite useful because it provides generally a robust sample size for the surface and also has it's, it's, it's relatively recent and, and not overly influenced by recent runs of good or bad form so that's something that i look at quite a lot so for example a guy <clears throat> a guy winning the french open four years ago who suddenly you know plummeted in the rankings in the hypothetical sense was wouldn't wouldn't that that, that four years ago victory would have no relevance to me whatsoever it might be more relevant i'll be more thinking it's more relevant that that They've, they've fallen down um, in terms of ability and perhaps statistically are, are not the player that they used to be. And that's something that I'd focus on a lot more than their previous reputation or what they did a few years back in their career. Um, so, yeah, from, from a basic point, just don't don't be influenced by that. The player's reputation, ranking and and uh, just you know who they are and, and, and perhaps what they achieve on other surfaces as well. So I'm, I'm quite surface specific as well. So I'll try and focus on on players' ability in certain certain services, quick slow conditions as well, rather than rather than an overall package. So, um, yeah, you might have a head-to-head matchup where where one player's you know value on clay, but then they're not value on grass kind of thing, and if, if the prices are the same, so it's important to to understand the differences between surfaces and how players play on different surfaces as well. Um, Modelers tend to use stuff like serve, service and return points, one percentages, hold rate percentages, 
uh, as well, just as means to expect to how to establish player superiority into an estimated win percentage for each player. Ideally, from there, you would consider other issues as well. So stuff like injuries, fitness, head-to-head, stuff like that. I mean, sometimes you get some like, really random situations whereby like a player's played like, Davis Cup matches in the Far East and then suddenly they have to come back to Europe and play play a match two days later in, in, in a tournament Um that that obviously has massive negative impact on their potential fitness and fatigue for that match, for example. The market adapts a lot better to that type of stuff than it used to be. It's an example of what you might think about prior to a match. Um, also, other stuff like the general matchup. Is it a server-orientated matchup? Is it a return-orientated matchup? Um, how do those type of players play against like big servers, for example? How do they play against left-handers? All that sort of stuff you might want to try and consider and, and, and adjust the model pricing where necessary you'd also look at how they play, how players play in certain conditions do they play well in fast conditions do they play well in slow conditions and generally i do find that's probably one area where where perhaps having decent data might give a decent advantage over over a lot of other people in the market in general following doing all that sort of stuff you can sort of relate, relate the estimated win percentage for each player to market prices and, and assess whether a player is valued so you can see there's kind of like a thorough process to go through for for each match as to to identify the value which obviously is a lot different to sort of like thinking okay well um Federer is playing Nadal Federer is my favorite player so I'll bet on him kind of thing you know yeah, I mean, objective analysis as opposed to subjective is is betting 101, isn't it? As you said, everything then kind of follows from there. Yeah, no, for sure, 100%. You, you just try and be as thorough as possible and, and, and as unbiased as possible is very, very important. And obviously there, kind of the lot, the, the lot of the points you raised there were about the process that someone goes through and the way you bet is obviously very important. But what about what you're actually betting on as well? So obviously there's... There's a split of markets within tennis and I mean you can bet live on a game by game basis or sets, you can bet on the totals, the handicap is there. Is there a, a market that's more suitable to a beginner better? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that um generally speaking, just the pre match markets is probably the one to start with. Yeah, the winner, winner of each match is, is probably the best area for someone to start with. Just primarily because if you do find it, it's probably easier to monetize it than in other areas because the limits are higher, they tend to be higher and and they tend to take take more of a bet. Um, and so if, if you've got that edge, it's easier to, to sort of scale it up a little bit. Um, side markets I found quite more, quite problematic to, to model. For example, you're looking at if you look at totals, you might say, okay, well, there's two players and they're both of them are say 1.5 pre-match, but one's a serve-orientated matchup and one's a return-orientated matchup. So the lines for over/under games are going to be completely different. The lines for Asian handicap are going to be completely different. You know, uh, game handicap, for example. So so it's it's quite situational, and I found that a lot tougher to look at. So I don't really bother. I don't really focus on that that area so much. And then it may kind of sound a bit simple, but am I right in thinking one way to approach it would be to to get to that point where you're looking at the game as a whole and then almost kind of work backwards on the probabilities that you've calculated and obviously um, serve and serve and break and be able to then look at things more granular into the sets in the games? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, if, if a player's value on the match odds market, they're probably going to be value on the side markets as well in different areas. So, you know, if they're... The value to win just 
to win the match. They're probably going to be value on the game handicap as well a lot of the time. Um, and then you can you can look at player history and work out uh, how, how they've played in a similar type of matchups before, whether they've been they've had issues with covering the handicaps and stuff like that. And I find that's quite useful as well. So certain players, for example, if if they're gonna get, if they're gonna the win, they might pretty much always do it in a very tight way and that's not necessarily always a trait for just big servers because there's other non-server orientated players who are like that and um and, that, and if you can find one of those players and they're a heavy favorite then obviously there might be some value on their opponent on the on the game handicap that type of thing let's kind of um, take this one step further and actually look at kind of the the tennis season so far this year I'd be interested to know in the way you approach things and perhaps maybe making it a little bit simpler for for some of our listeners out there who who are the ones that have kind of over or underperformed this season against expectation okay so so one player that I want to speak about a little bit is Daniel Medvedev from Russia He's, he's a young player, uh, has a very, very high potential. Some, a player that I pegged as having high potential a good two or three years ago, or two years ago, I would say, probably, when he started making a breakthrough on challenges. And, um, however, he's done his best work previously in very quick conditions and, and hasn't done anything of note on, on clay or in slow conditions at all, either on the main tour or on challenges. So... His performances in Monte Carlo, where he reached the semi-final and, the, and then subsequently made the final in Barcelona, were really, really unexpected and caught me quite on the hop as well. I didn't didn't see that coming at all. Now, with Medvedev as well, given the fact that he's he's got that record of playing very well, very well in in quick conditions, I would say, okay, well, his his performances in slow conditions are showing that he's really on an upward curve still, and and I would therefore maybe upgrade his expectations a little bit for the grass events coming up in, in, in June and July and think maybe he might be a real live contender for Wimbledon at a, um, a long shot kind of price. Um, other players I think who sort of overperformed well, uh, Matteo Berrettini, um, the Italian young, young player from Italy, he's currently 11-3 on clay this year, running at almost 107% combined service and return points 1 percentage. Market's kind of worked out that he's on an upward curve a bit, but he's taking a really high level into the French Open where maybe he could shock a bigger name or two. He's, he's right on the cusp of the seeding spots at the moment. I think what he's done in, in Rome this week is probably going to be enough to get him in that top 32. Um, but but there's he's going to be a pretty, you know, live player against perhaps a, a, a big name who's maybe not so, so comfortable on clay. Um, and then the real, I guess, overperformer and underperformer, I guess, is Fornini, who who won Monte Carlo after being zero five on clay prior to the tournament. Now, in Monte Carlo, he played a much higher caliber of player than he than he generally faced in those five lot straight losses at the start of the clay season, and, and those losses were in slow conditions that he usually sort of revels in, and um, I was, you know, it was just a massive, massive shock to see him see him in Monte Carlo as a sort of change player and yes he does have a high peak level but I didn't expect that at all um underperformers you would say Alexander Zverev would be the obvious name uh he's running at five five wins out of 11 on clay this year with 
all but one defeat coming as a solid or strong favourite, and yet the other defeat was just a very, very marginal underdog against Sitsipas. Um, he's barely running at over 100% combined serve and return points, 1 percentage on clay this year, which is well down on his 2018 numbers, about 7% down on 2018. So that's that's a real drop-in level from, from Alexander Zverev. And a controversial take on underperformance on clay this year, um, Rafa Nadal. He's running at just over 111% combined serve and return points one clay in 2019, but that's compared to almost 117% in 2018. I think it's pretty fair to say he's still the best player on tour on clay this year, but um, not nearly at last year's level. And these these kind of numbers you mentioned, they're kind of like 100%, 110%, whatever it might be. Are we are we able to to band that into kind of what would be expected of an elite performer or average? Yeah, there's there's massive context that you can apply to this type of thing. So generally speaking, you're looking at combined service and return points one percentage. Um, anything over 107%, you're getting to be coming very strong top 10 level in that surface and then sort of 110 plus you're looking at sort of elite level um anything sort of like 104 to 107 type thing is like borderline around about top sort of solid top 20 um anything over 100 percent you'd be obviously you're above average for the surface so you'll be looking at sort of a rank around sort of between 20 and 50 depending on how how high it is and sort of variance and stuff like that um and then obviously as as, as it goes below that 100 mark you would be looking at uh, being below average on the surface, and then some, say for example below below ninety uh, would be like well out, well outside the top one hundred for for that type of surface. So you can add quite a lot of context to those numbers for sure. And it, I mean, it's interesting that um, I mean, I myself I enjoy watching tennis for for like the the major events. I'm certainly not digging around in data and, and betting on it or anything like that. But the the overperformers there are what you kind of deem as relative unknowns and then the underperformers are obviously very big name top 10 players so as we said before about the people that are just starting to bet on tennis could we suggest that perhaps watching more tennis and out of the big tournaments might be a good bit of advice yeah definitely and and you can see there's so many sort of up and coming players in the smaller tournaments not necessarily as as low down as challengers although that helps too but say like the 250s and 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 in particular, are very good for pegging young players and working out how they how they might perform against tour regulars, for example. So, a 250 ranked tournament, which is the lowest tournament on on the ATP tour, the main tour, um, the ranking cutoff for for direct entry for the tournament is a lot lower than it would be for for a 500 or a Masters uh, event, and and therefore you would be able to have more of a closer look at uh, those players who maybe are sort of between challenger and main tour level young players who get wild cards that type of thing so focusing on some smaller tournaments which perhaps a lot of recreational betters don't tend to do that much it, it is definitely recommended and i mean obviously you, you've given some great insight there into into the men's tour is there any kind of numbers that jump out from your data on the women's side of the game yeah, so uh, a couple of players um, running up to the French Open. Um, Naomi Osaka, um, she's she's struggled a little bit post-Australian Open with a few defeats, a strong favourite. But her clay data has shown a marked improvement this year compared to, to previously. So I think that my expectations of her going into the French Open are a lot, a lot better than, than what I would have perceived previously. 
Um, she hadn't really achieved much on clay prior to prior to the um, this season. So that's that's something to bear in mind prior to the French Open, given given the fact that she's going to be one of the market favourite. Uh, and Karina Pliskova is is is, an, is another one. Um, she. She's got a decent enough record this year. She's won about 75% of her matches, and she's running at just over 106% combined serve and return points, one percentage across surfaces this year. It's decent enough, but she's she's been solid without winning titles. And, and, and you, you get that quite a lot in women's tennis, that a lot of players are very, very close to each other in terms of their, their average level. And so it takes take, often takes some variance in in the latter stages of tournaments and positive variants to, to, to get wins against similarly matched players. And, and just because a player hasn't necessarily won a title in, in a long period of time does not mean to say that they're a live contender for, for future tournaments when we, a lot of the time it is that sort of even money matches in semi-finals, finals, etc. Yeah, I mean, I get you, you get that a lot with the, the split between the men's and women's game, don't you? Often one of the, the gripes people say is that the men's game is too kind of condensed when it gets to elite level, whereas the women's is a lot more unpredictable. That's fair to say, yeah. I mean... Uh, I'd say like in women's tennis, there might be like 20 players who on a given day would, would be able to beat a rival player of a similar level, whereas in men's you just don't really get that. There's just a massive gap between the top top couple and, and the rest. And I guess that's, you know, looking at, looking at that, you, you would say, well, the women's tennis tour is, is more is more competitive and therefore sort of more fun to watch for a neutral I suppose you might say because every every you know you, you don't you don't go into say the first or second round of a grand slam and see see Novak Djokovic or, or Roger Federer or Rafa getting getting beat very often or even in a tight match and 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 you know those matches on TV are just ultimately very very boring Whereas a women's match, you see shocks from the start of the tournament a lot of the time, and and and, that, and that's much more compelling to watch for a neutral for sure. So it's it's one thing to kind of analyse these players and their performance and everything like that, but obviously there's a a massive kind of element to consider, and that's what they're actually playing on. Um, and tennis is a very unique sport in the sense of the surfaces and stuff like that. So let's kind of just discuss a little bit. Um, about the different surfaces that people can play on in tennis and what kind of impact that might have on performance. I'd like to, if we first, if we talk, we'll go through the kind of um, the season, we'll end up, we'll end up with clay since we can then move on to the French Open. But so hard court surface, let's have a brief kind of summary of that and then why it's important to consider certain elements of performance on that surface. Yeah, okay, so what I did prior to this was was get the sort of latest twelve month data for, for the different surfaces and, and, and that's and sort of illustrates the differences between the, the three main surfaces on the tour. So in men's tennis, um hard and indoor hard combined has got sixty four point four percent service points one percentage, um zero point five nine aces per game. Whereas on grass, that those numbers rise. They rise to 66.1% service points won and 0.64 aces per game. So you can see that, that on grass, in those quicker conditions, it benefits the server more. And, and there's there's more service points won in general. There's more aces per game served. And so it's more of a serve-orientated type type of condition. Then if you if you look at clay after that, you would 
the numbers drop massively both when you compare to grass and for hard and indoor hard courts. So in clay, just 62.2% of service points are won in the men's tour. And the aces per game count drops massively to 0.36 aces per game. So it's not far off half the aces per game served on clay as there is on grass. Now, considering considering this, we can see that the grass in particular should benefit those players with a big serve given that extra court speed, which would then produce more service points won and aces in general. For example, over the last two years, John Isner serves 1.49 aces per game on grass. And in clay, that falls to just 1.35 aces per game. So, so he serves around 10% more aces per game on grass compared to what he does on clay. So you can see how, how that, that benefits him over a big sample size that would that would that would result in a lot more aces per game so over a grand slam tournament Wimbledon compared to French Open for example where maybe his expectations would be to get to say the quarterfinals roughly uh, based on his sort of ranking and, uh, and general general data so so over the you know how many service over how many service games a, 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 he would serve on route to that sort of quarterfinal stage would be you'd, you'd be looking at a lot more aces overall on grass compared to what he'd be able to achieve on clay and that, and that obviously goes against his his game plan which is to have that solid serve and, and to get him through those tight moments and win a lot of cheap points and is that so i mean obviously the, the serve is the highlight kind of thing there is that because the way the ball bounces the way the ball travels after the bounce yeah okay so um the grass obviously is is a harder surface than clay so there's there's that that bouncing element for sure. I mean every every different court's got different dynamics, and and a lot of the time, like if if you're looking at if you go on you know, live scores website or, or just a general tennis resource, it would just say French Open clay or Madrid clay. But what you don't understand is that there's a massive difference between different venues. So various venues would use different suppliers for the court. So you might you might get different type of seed for grass or you might get a different hard court manufacturer for example tournaments uh, can use different balls and then they might have different climatic conditions as well so for example madrid is played at a bit of altitude which is um quite helpful for big servers so you see generally the the big servers might perform work better in madrid than they they would at say monte carlo which tends to be very slow so you would want to go dig deeper on that sort of generic court night court term for example let's say not just think our tournaments on clay and think well is it on fast clay is it on slow clay that type of thing and the madrid clay is so quick the, the conditions in madrid are so quick i would say that it plays more akin to a hard court than it would a clay court for example and i mean beyond the beyond the composition of the the surface itself obviously the the quality i guess is important and is it like other sports where at the elite level the quality of that surface is always going to be consistent or can it kind of alter depending on the tournament how, how do you mean a bit like that exactly sorry so i mean if we talk about like a premier league football club you're always going to expect a, a pristine surface for them to play on and then obviously if you drop down to kind of championship league one league two it then becomes very unpredictable in terms of the the quality of the actual surface is that is there something like that in tennis it's obviously very, very difficult to quantify because you're kind of one. You need to make subjective judgments on 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 the court, and to be able to have access to to the what what it looks like kind of in advance of matches starting. Obviously, 
sort of second week of Wimbledon, you, you would see that the grass is a lot more worn. But I've never really looked at that. But maybe that's maybe that's an angle that, that might be quite useful to have a look at. Would be whether it's it benefits servers more, for example, in the second week of Wimbledon when the grass is more worn than 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 in um than in a in the first week, for example. That might be quite quite interesting to look at actually. And one of the one of the other points you raised there was kind of like climatic conditions, and I mean a lot of your articles for Pinnacle you talk about conditions more generally. So we can we kind of just talk about them a little bit more as well? Yeah. So so some tournaments on the ATP Tour are played at, at higher altitude than others, uh, and that generally the altitude helps the ball travel quicker through the air. So you would you would so tournaments like Madrid. And you've seen some really notable ones in, in the past as well. So in, they used to have a few in South America, in Quito, Bogota, where where they were played at quite extreme altitude. And it, it, funnily enough, there was one guy, um, Victor Estrella, who who was never particularly highly ranked um, from Dominican Republic, uh, one of the few professional players from, from Dominican Republic. He coped extremely well with, with the altitude and he was borderline unbeatable in those tournaments, even against much more illustrious players. So, so understanding who performs well in those type of conditions is really useful. There's a couple of sort of alpine clay tournaments in Europe, in in Gestad and Kitzbühel as well, but but they 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 don't tend to have nearly the, the dramatic effects of those South American clay tournaments or or Madrid. So. So understanding that sort of the altitude conundrum around tournaments is 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 quite important for those few tournaments where it really applies to. And then things like, I mean, heat, rainfall is that obviously that can, I'm assuming with um, grass and clay specifically that must have some kind of impact. Again, that's very very difficult to quantify because I mean when you're looking at the altitude tournaments, you can go okay, well look at how they. Have the service points one or aces per game percentages in 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 those tournaments over years gone by, so you would be able to to quantify that pretty well. Whereas, well, I'm I'm not going to be able to to remember so easily whether it rained on the first Thursday of the Australian Open, for example, and then look at historical results based on that. If that makes sense, and and, and so it's it, it's very very difficult to to draw those kind of conclusions on a statistical basis. let's kind of let's focus on clay um in a little bit more detail obviously the the french open's coming up it's the the most well-known clay competition there are there are a few others at the elite level as well but from your perspective as a player what kind of skills are required to be able to perform well on clay okay well the the french open is is pretty unique tournament because it's the slowest grand slam of the four across the main season in terms of conditions you might also say that on a, on the men's tour in particular, it, it's arguably quite tougher on a men's player's body than than the other Grand Slams. So you've already got the five sets that are given across all Grand Slams, but then the French Open in the slower conditions generally might have a more of a, a longer 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 shots to decide a point. So you're looking at longer points, longer rallies, longer matches compared to, to say, a five-setter on, on clay might might take a lot longer than a five-setter on grass, for example, because grass has a lot more points decided by, by aces or unreturned serves. 
So the points tend to be quicker on grass and they do clay. So it's, it's, it, the match is longer for clay. So that accumulated fatigue is very, very, very important to bear in mind. Um, sort of going into the second week of the French Open in particular. Um, with this in mind, it's perhaps unsurprising that favourites generally yield a decent return in the second week of the French Open. So that's perhaps something that, that people might want to look at. And the the obvious question that concerns Clay is Nadal's been so dominant in recent years. And although you've kind of suggested there is a bit of relative underperformance there, what is it about his game that makes him so good on the surface? Yes, it's a simple answer. He's just the best returner on clay on tour by an absolute mile. Um, on clay in 2019, he's broken 42% of the time. And it, this is this is still like magnificent data, but it's dropped from 46% in 2018 and again 46% in 2017. So you can see that, like from those numbers, he's not far off breaking opponents half of the time, which is for men's tennis players just truly incredible um he's consistently been by far and away the best returner on clay year in year out not only that he performs very very well in slow conditions so for example compared comparing his record in masters and slams in slow conditions on clay compared to the quicker conditions in madrid it's like chalk and cheese his record in madrid is good it's not great so not nearly it's not nearly as sort of stratospheric as what it is in slow conditions you know the slow slow masters like monte carlo or the french open and as a slam it's completely different to his record in that sort of quicker clay so the, the slow or medium slow i guess conditions that you would have in in paris uh, are going to be quite to his liking and that's why he's won so many grand slams there and one of the things that's that's quite notable notable for even like a beginner when you watch nadal is this his style of movement across the court, there's a lot of sliding going on. I mean, he's very quick. Is that what makes him so good at returning, do you think? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, that sort of stuff is very, very difficult to quantify. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot of factors that go into it. Obviously, he's got an a incredible amount of natural talent, but he's also probably got, you would say, one of the, the greatest desires and wills to win and, and, and sort of mental strength Again, compared to most players on tour, and I think that, that that that's a massive part of his success as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about unquantifiable elements. You could talk even confidence that someone has going into a surface, thinking I'm unbeatable on this. What what potential impact does that have? I guess it's, it's a difficult one, but but with 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 Nadal, obviously he he's he's got these stellar records in major slow clay conditions so you would think that that's going to be a massive advantage for for him going into a particular tournament but also the fact that you know opponents are going to be wary of that as well and you might see the sort of the the aura around him get him a lot of wins which perhaps he matches that he maybe doesn't deserve to win if that makes sense yeah and there's obviously going to be a lot of focus on Nadal throughout the tournament probably the outright markets and each each game that he plays I'm just interested to know that we kind of spoke about the players earlier that you would earmark as, as ones to watch and ones that have kind of underperformed. Does that is that applying now straight into into the French Open or do you add that other element of clay court specific performance as well? Yeah, clay clay court specific performance or, or, or similar condition clay court specific performance is, is very, very important. So a few of the players that I think might be worth watching on the men's side, um lower lower sort of profile players if you like we spoke about berrettini already um now a couple of other 
players who are sort of outside the seeding brackets. Christian Garin um, has got superb clay data this year. He's young and on an upward curve. Um, and Hubert Hercutz of, of Poland, very, very similar as well in that type of profile. They're two to keep an eye on. I think that they could cause, cause a, a seeded player a very, very difficult time. And, and you might you might get some value on them in, in a match where perhaps they're playing against a, a seeded player or a bigger name player who's not so comfortable on clay. Um, Born and Chorich, I've spoken about for years, is having high potential and he's got solid clay data. He lost yesterday in Rome, having had too much points against Roger Federer yesterday in the final set tiebreak as well. So, so he's clearly playing at a high level and, and perhaps could be one of the sort of players outside the top 10 to go well. Um, there's a few players who, 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 on the flip side, you would say might disappoint uh, based on their reputation. We spoke a bit about Alexander Zverev earlier. He's got so much to prove both this year and, and in slams in general, where he's got generally quite poor, poor record. And Marin Cilic is having a tough time at the moment with injury and illness of late. So, so that, that's not great for him going into French Open. Um, Shapovalov and, and Grigor Dimitrov generally don't perform great in slow conditions uh, and, and prefer it quicker. And Dimitrov in particular looks at, looks looks you know, a bit in free fall at the moment. He's not far off dropping out of the top 50. So for a player who, who's sort of regularly in and around the top 10 for a few years, that's that's difficult for him. And if we just kind of touch briefly on the, the outright odds, I'd kind of be interested to get your reaction to, to how Pinnacle had the players listed in the outright markets. I mean, obviously you've got... Nadal's right at the top there at 2.08, um, closely followed by Djokovic at 2.91. Um, Dominic Team is actually third at 5.06. And then, yeah, Federer, 16.07. And Stefanos Tsitsipas at 19.63. Is there, is there anything surprising there for you? No, I think that the market, with those sort of quite well-exposed players, if you like, has it, got, it, got it quite quite right. Um, so... The top three, you would say, okay, well, well, they're the three players who who would have the highest expectations to perform. Team probably looks a little bit short, but you would say, well, okay, he's he, he's performed decent enough this year on the surface. The players at slightly bigger prices, Federer, I guess he hasn't played a lot on clay, but yeah, you know, he has he has played the two Masters this year, which is a lot more than he usually plays. So. Um, the market's always going to be quite keen to keep him relatively on side, despite the fact that, that perhaps it's not his best surface. His data this year is actually quite solid, and, and it's interesting to see here that he's a shorter price than Sitsipas for the French Open, yet Sitsipas is the favourite to win their match today in Rome, which I'm not sure that I, I agree with in terms of the match today. So so that's that's an interesting one for sure. And you've got a few other players back. The likes of Nishikori, Vavrinka, Chilich, Del Potro. It's going to be tough for those guys because Nishikori has proven over over a lot of Grand Slams that he he struggles to in that sort of seven potential seven matches, best of five sets in two weeks. He and, and against that's his serve tends to be exposed a little bit against the real elite players as well. Chilich is coming into the tournament with no no real level at all. Del Potro's had a lot of injuries and Vavrinka perhaps isn't the player that he used to be either. So, you know, those sort of the, the next best, if you like, is, is is difficult in the in the outrights as well to, to, to pick out anyone who you you know you might think is decent value. And then on the, the WTA side, obviously as we said earlier, it's not really surprising given how unpredictable that tour has been but it's it's really wide open i mean halep's 
at the top at 4.52. You then got um, Kiki Burton's at 7.09 before Serena Williams at 9.46. And then everyone else is kind of double digits. So Sarka's 10.4. Is there anything that surprises you with that? I think, again, the, you can obviously from the, start, the first point you can see is that it's a lot more open than the men's tournament, which is something that we spoke about earlier as well. The women's tour is just, there's so many players who are on their given day are capable of beating each other. Um, I think Halep's a justifiable favourite for, for sure for me. Her return data is, is Nadal-esque in a women's context, if you like. Uh, and um, I think she goes into the tournament as, as a decent favourite, actually. And I think that, that she's going to be quite hard to beat. Burton's has decent data, but I wouldn't say that it's particularly better than, than a few of the others in there. Um Kvita is an interesting one. She's had a had a decent uh, clay season, but she retired yesterday, and and perhaps she likes quicker conditions a little bit more than than, than the slower ones she might face it in Paris. But you know, there's 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 a ton of players here who are more than capable of throwing in a good run in Paris, and, and you wouldn't want to rule out say any of the top twenty in the betting really at all, or the vast majority of them at least. And there's there's clearly a lot of focus on the the French Open at the moment. But if we're just to kind of take a quick minute to to look ahead beyond the French and the the remainder of the season, what are you kind of looking out for for the next few months? Okay, well, obviously after the French Open, it's the grass court season. Clay to grass is the biggest surface change in terms of service points one on the tour. So it's it's quite a big transition for the for the players. So it tends to take players time to adjust from from the slow conditions to the quick conditions generally there's the surface specialists on on both tours who often perform better than market expectations so a few of the players who are lower ranked who i'd expect to perform better on grass perhaps than they would on clay you would be looking at guys like nick kyrgios grigor dimitrov adrian manorino matt ebden uh players who've generally performed well on grass compared to other surfaces previously um, also interested in seeing how Riley Apelka does in his first grass court season, really on the main tour. Um, for those of you who don't know a lot about him, he's um, uh, the next John Isner, if you like, a giant and big serving American. Um, should be very, very difficult to break his serve on grass, I would think. So um, he might be a guy who you might, might be able to look at if he's an underdog against a big name on the handicap, for example. Um, or perhaps some tie-break markets or, or as well would be another way of, way, way of dealing with his matches. And, and I spoke about earlier, Daniel Medvedev's definitely one to watch regarding like a long shot when but an outright because he's shown that continual improvement even on the clay, which he's done nothing on before. And he's got that general liking for quicker conditions as well. So if he's improving on clay, then I, then I really think that he might have the game to, to go deep in Wimbledon for sure. Um, in the women's, players like Camilla Georgi, uh, Ry Barakova, Flipkins, Alison Risk, Johanna Conta, they've all shown a liking for quicker conditions historically and could, could well prove to be some decent value on grass as well. So there's there's a few names for, for people to, to focus on and have a look at in a bit more detail about players who, who might perform well on grass post-French Open, if you like. Um, after grass, we've got hard courts, both indoor and outdoor, for virtually the entire rest of the season. So we've got this continued spell where, where serve-orientated players are quite likely to thrive in general. So kind of plays into their hands a bit. The clay courses are going to have a bit of a tough time a bit from sort of French Open onwards. They get they get another month sort of almost of uh, of um low profile clay tournaments after the French Open, but but on the whole from sort of July onwards they're going to be playing 
solely hardcore, and that's going to be tough for a few of the traditional clay courses, if you like. Well, we'll let some we'll let some data stack up, and then we can we can get you on ahead of Wimbledon, and then before the before the U.S. Open towards the end of the season. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely look forward to that. Well, I think that we can wrap it up there, Dan. I just want to say thanks again for coming on. I mean, it's a pleasure as always, and I'm I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed everything you've had to say. No, thanks. It's always great to do this type of thing, so I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ben. And for everyone listening, we'll have some previews ahead of the French Open from Dan going live on pinnacle.com forward slash betting resources. And if you want any more information, you can follow at Pinnacle Sports on Twitter. But thanks for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>